0: это наиболее Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season, I'm covering cases in Scotland, city of Edinburgh. And tonight's episode is about the World's End Murders, named after the pub that sits along the Royal Mile in Edinburgh's Old Town. So tonight's episode is true crime based. The only thing haunting about the World's End pub is the murders of two 17-year-old girls. There will be some descriptions that may be uncomfortable, but I'm going to try to explain as much as you need to know to understand the case as a whole. So I won't go into crazy detail with everything, but just enough to understand. I was originally researching all of the haunted pubs in Edinburgh, and I stumbled upon this horrific case. So usually I stick to, you know, the true crime that leads to paranormal encounters. And maybe this pub is haunted. I couldn't find a lot on that. But I just felt the need to share a case i had never heard of and one that really changed Edinburgh and Scotland as a whole. So we're going to talk about this World's End murders case And at the end, I will be telling you a paranormal story of my own, an encounter I just had a couple days ago. So stay tuned for that. But let's jump into this case. It's the evening of October 15th, 1977, when two friends, Christine Eady and Helen Scott, went to the World's End pub. It was Saturday night at around 11 p.m., when they met a couple of guys near the phone booth in the pub they chatted for a bit and eventually they went their separate ways the two 17 year olds stayed until the bar closed and left together it was the 70s in the uk so no one really carded the two girls at the bar they had been drinking but witnesses never said that they were drunk and this is a common thing especially in college towns i found like they'll let 17, 18 year olds in the bar. And nowadays, they're like, you can't drink, but you can be in the bar. Whereas I feel in the 70s, there really wasn't anyone checking on that. And the drinking age in the United States, I believe, was 18. And so, UK, I'm not sure what it was, but I'm sure it was around there. So, no one was really clocking these two girls. You know, they're both 17, they're having a good time, they're talking to guys, but. They went their separate ways. Neither Christine or Helen's parents worried too much about them because the two girls were known for sleeping over at each other's houses and either letting one set of parents know or the other who they were spending the night with, but they were always together. So the parents just assumed the girls were sleeping over at the other couple's house. However, the following morning, in Gosford Bay, East Lothian, Christine's body was found. She had been beaten, gagged, tied up, raped, and strangled to death. The police were immediately called at 8 a.m. and made their way to the beach. Her body was not concealed in any way. The police talked to Christine's parents and learned that her friend Helen was still missing. The police spread out, and not long after, they found Helen's body six miles away in the same condition. Their tights were used to tie their hands behind their backs, and their lower half was naked. But they still had their shirts and coats on. When the police asked around, they found out that they were last seen leaving the World's End pub off the Royal Mile in Old Town, Edinburgh. The bartender who was working that night stated that the two men he had seen them talking to also left when the pub closed, but the four of them did not leave together. With no evidence left at the crime scenes and no video cameras because it was the 70s. This was the best lead the police had, these two men. They continued to ask around about these two men, and another witness stated seeing them leave in a white van. They were around 27 to 30 years old and possibly in the military. 5,000 people were initially interviewed about this case, but without computers. They had to hand write all the information down on index cards. For those of you who grew up in the 90s and earlier. Very common in libraries. At least I I remember them phasing them out into computers and libraries. But having, you know, your little Rolodex of information on index cards. Anyway, it was basically, it was hard to track any military men down because they were always on the move and usually only stayed for one night in edinburgh if they were in the military the men could be anywhere and the white van identification didn't go very far because there were just too many white vehicles in edinburgh at the time which is a common issue all over the place i believe white is the most common color for any kind of car and we're talking about white vans which a lot of the times are undescript so it, tracking that down because we didn't have a license plate number there wasn't anything other than white and van so it was impossible to track that down as well the media took the story and ran it didn't take long before the story of christine and helen made national news but unfortunately the investigation didn't go very far and police were at a loss the two men had gotten away with murder. With nowhere to go, the police reached out to other departments outside of Edinburgh and found a case that was similar to Christine and Helen's. On Friday, December 2nd, 1977, 23-year-old nurse Agnes Clooney and her friend Gina went to see an Irish band play in Glasgow. The bar, I believe, is called Clotta Club. And they went because gina's boyfriend was in the band so the two women stayed after the show and helped the band pack up which i am very familiar with being a musician i am always helping people pack up instruments (laughs) agnes was last seen by the bar staff who waved goodnight as she left alone i'm assuming gina went with her boyfriend and they either went to his place or he dropped her off at her place There isn't much information about that, but Agnes did leave the bar alone. And Sunday morning at 9 a.m., Agnes's body was found 15 miles away from where she was last seen. Her lifeless body was left very similar to Christine and Helen's. However, remember, we're in a completely different city. Even though Glasgow and Edinburgh are not very far away from each other, I think it's like an hour drive. There's still huge metropolitan areas with their own police departments and jurisdictions. And linking crimes up in different cities like that is incredibly difficult, especially in the 70s when you don't have computers. To help you with that however the Edinburgh police did reach out they realized there may be other women that also were murdered by the same man or men so when they took a deeper look they found two more women Hilda McAuley and Anna Kenny Anna Kenny was 20 years old when she was last seen leaving hurdy-gurdy bar which is a great name for a bar, by the way. But she was leaving Hurdy Gurdy Bar in Glasgow on August 6th, 1977. She left with a man, which is why police were interested in her case. Because at that point, her body had never been found. But the way she disappeared lined up with Christine, Helen, and Agnes. All four of those women left a bar when it was closing some were talking to men inside the bar some left with a man it was is all very similar and the fact that Anna's case was in Glasgow just like Agnes's case also helped them link that together that was August 6th Christine and Helen's was in October and Agnes's was in December so we're kind of backtracking at this point Hilda, on the other hand, 36-year-old mom of two, she was last seen leaving a dance with a man from Plaza Ballroom in Glasgow. Her body was found by two kids picking blackberries on October 2nd, 1977. She was found in a set of bushes, so not really concealed either. So that makes four women's bodies and one woman missing all in Glasgow and Edinburgh the two largest cities in Scotland and they're only around like I was saying they're only around 45 miles away from each other so someone could plausibly travel between the two cities and commit these kinds of crimes easily without modern day forensics the police didn't have any suspects other than these two men Sketches of these men were put in papers, but no one came forward. All five of these women's cases ran ice cold. The public began to panic, thinking there was a serial killer living in Glasgow and or Edinburgh, which makes perfect sense. You have all these women were, I mean, besides Hilda, who was thirty six years old, Anna was twenty. Agnes was 23, and Christine and Helen were 17. So late teens, early 20s, it tracks as being a serial killer. What made it worse were three unsolved murders in Glasgow between 1968 and 1969, just eight years prior to the case we're talking about now. Those three women, Patricia Docker, Jemima McDonald, and Helen Puddock, were all killed by a man known as Bible John. They were all between 25 and 32 years old, leaving Barrowland Ballroom. That was the last time they were seen leaving this ballroom. He's called Bible John because he spent time with Helen Puddock on her and her friend at the ballroom, before they all grabbed a taxi to head home. In the taxi, he kept quoting the Old Testament and called the ballroom an, quote, adulterous den of iniquity, unquote, which he said as he continued to go back to this place. So, fuck that man. His name's Bible John. He introduced himself as John, so they knew him as John, and then Bible because he kept quoting these Old Testament quotes but he was never caught those murders at the end of the 60s mixed with the murders at the end of the 70s really put scotland on edge so of course the police told women to go out in pairs or groups never alone not to be out too late and to dress appropriately Of course, there's no directions to men on how they should act. Men weren't given a curfew. Men weren't given a dress code. They weren't telling men to go in groups together. So I do have to hand it to the women of Scotland because they were not taking that bullshit and began protesting. Which really brought the conversation about rape and sexual harassment to the forefront. It's something we still, unfortunately, need to talk about because men still don't know how to act right. But things have come a long way. I'm not going to speak more on that just because I will never know how that feels. But the documentary I watched really got me charged up about this, as it should. Basically, men need to step it up and support women and own up to their shit. Anyway. Scotland... At this time, was in a panic because of Bible John, World's End Killer, and another serial killer operating between 1975 and 1980, known as the Yorkshire Ripper. The Yorkshire Ripper killed 13 women in five years and attacked 11 more. Because of all of these men killing around the same time, it confused police in thinking that all these murders could be related to one another. Or it could be 15 different men. Like, it's a lot, it's a big puzzle that they're trying to put together and it just keeps getting more confusing. Yorkshire Ripper is in England, so if he was involved in Edinburgh, could he have just been there on a little side trip? Could he be visiting Glasgow and from England or vice versa? Could he have killed in Glasgow, gone to jail, then moved to England? The police basically had far more questions than answers. And it had been years since Christine and Helen were found in Edinburgh. And the police were no closer to finding their murderers than when they started. So we're... World's End Murders happened 77 We're years past that. Nothing's come of it. Nothing's come of Bible John murders. Nothing's really come of the Yorkshire Ripper murders. So at this point, police in Edinburgh and Glasgow thought about joining forces at this point. However, when they thought more about it, it was decided that it'd be more efficient to keep their cases separate, but to keep the line of communication open. I don't really know what spurred them to make that decision, but short. The world's end murders of Christine and Helen had no traction for almost 10 years. However, in 1986, Leicestershire, England had the first set of DNA fingerprinting that took place for a police investigation. So that case in 1986 was about 15-year-old Dawn Ashworth who had been raped and strangled and she wasn't the only one in the neighborhood to be attacked. 18 months prior to Dawn's 18 months prior to Dawn another 15-year-old Linda Mann met the same fate as Dawn. The police acted quickly and and arrested a 17 year old boy who lived in the area. And they sent his DNA to be tested for the first time. And they found he was not the murderer. Police were shocked and decided to continue to use the DNA testing to find the murderer. And because they were convinced the man lived in the area, they asked every man to volunteer their DNA. So after eight months, 5,500 men volunteered their blood and fingerprints. No match was found. However, the police were informed that a man in the area had a friend impersonate him and give his blood twice. The police arrested Colin Pitchfork and sent his DNA, finding him guilty of Don and Linda's murders. So with this new technique and technology, Christine and Helen may finally have justice for their murders. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, we are back. So with the introduction of DNA, fingerprinting, and the computer, police had better tools at their disposal. A cold case team began to look into the world's end murders again. They swabbed Helen's coat, but unfortunately no DNA was found. Whether it was deteriorate, deteriorating or somehow there wasn't any hair or... You know, it was the 70s, so they didn't treat the crime scenes correctly. We're not sure, but they couldn't find DNA or enough DNA to test on Helen's or Christine's clothing. It wasn't until 1997, 20 years after the murders, when a cold case team in Glasgow was looking into the November 1978 death of a 17-year-old girl named Mary Gallagher. They were able to obtain DNA from Mary's case, and they traced it back to a man in his 40s named Angus Sinclair. Now, I don't give a fuck about this man. I don't care what his childhood is like, but I am going to lay out some of his criminal history because it starts at a very young age of 13 years old when he stole money from a Glasgow church in 1959. He was given 12 months probation. The same year, he was admonished for a housebreaking charge. And it escalates a lot from here, just so you know. So yes, he was young, 13 years old. Police and courts don't usually hand out harsh punishments for young kids, Maybe they'll put him in a juvenile detention center for a year or so or a few months, but I get it. But because these crimes were taken more seriously, it led to other more horrific things, of course, as it usually does in serial serial, serial killers' cases. So at age 15, he sexually assaulted an eight-year-old girl. All he got for that was a three-year probation. I want to make it very clear that he is a monster, but also that the police and judicial system fail time and time again here. He was 15, she was 8, and he got three years probation. Seven months... Into his three-year probation, he sexually assaulted another eight-year-old girl. This time, he escalated and killed her. And he pawned it off on somebody else. He wanted to make it look like somebody else or, if, or that it was an accident. So if he went to jail for the first time around, that girl would still be alive. I'm not going to detail her case, because it's horrific, but he confessed and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison at this point. 10 for killing an eight-year-old girl. 10 years. The judge described him as callous, cunning, and wicked. Now look, I don't know what Scotland's judicial system looks like at this point in the 70s or before that, even the sixties. But we can all agree that that is just horrific and he deserves much, much longer than 10 years in prison. Even if you're 15, 16 years old. After he was released from prison four years early, mind you. He only served six years. It was the early 70s. He got married to a nurse named Sarah and two years later had a son. The year his son was born, he was convicted of illegally possessing a revolver. He was arrested again. He was released in the late 70s and between June and December of nineteen seventy seven went on a killing spree. Between his jail time, he would hold women at knife point and rape them and was known as the Blue Door Man in Glasgow. And he continued this pattern into the eighties, where he was given a life sentence in nineteen eighty two for his sexual offences in Glasgow. This life sentence was very rare at the time. He was only the fourth person in Scotland to receive a life sentence, and it wasn't for murdering anyone. It was just for sexual offenses. So rightfully so, but it's surprising. He was a serial rapist at this point, and the police had a very strong case for that. He denied the claims, of course, but he was found guilty regardless so he's finally in prison lifelong sentence he should have had a lifelong sentence long before that but he still wasn't ever charged for murdering these women in Glasgow and Edinburgh they did not linked him to any of those yet this is just for his sexual offenses in Glasgow and then he served you know six years earlier for the murder of the child This gets us to 2001. So between 1982 and 01, Sinclair was serving a life sentence, and that is why the murders stopped. That's why a lot of murders stop in serial killers cases, because they're either arrested for an unrelated crime, we see time and time again, or they die, and so the killings stop, or... Somebody moves to a different city and just continues it in a different state, city, country, whatever. Sinclair was arrested for these sexual offenses, so obviously the killing stopped. However, in 2001, he was convicted for Mary Gallagher's murder after they found his DNA on her. He received another life sentence... In 2004, another cold case team got together to solve the other women's murders in Edinburgh and Glasgow. They discovered that DNA found in the world's end murders was a mix of two DNAs. This DNA came from not the coat that Helen was wearing, but somewhere else on one of the Christine or Helen's bodies. But this was a mix of two DNAs, and they were able to separate the DNA Finding one was Angus Sinclair and the other was one of the two girls that the DNA was found on. The police finally had what they were looking for for decades. They could finally link Sinclair to the Edinburgh murders, the World's End murders. However, if you think back to the night, Christine and Helen went missing. They were hanging out With two men so the question became who was the second man and was he involved with the Glasgow murders as well or just the Edinburgh murders police began to do research based on who he would hang out with in the 70s and 80s the man that kept coming up was his wife's brother Gordon Hamilton Hamilton and his brother-in-law, Sinclair, would hang out on weekends a lot. Sinclair's wife would say that he would drive over to Edinburgh from Glasgow every weekend, claiming it was for extra work as a painter and or carpenter. He would take their white caravan, and she wouldn't hear from him until Sunday night or Monday morning when he got home. The police began to look into Gordon His description fit the other man in the World's End pub. But when they went to question him, they learned that he had died in 1996. The police decided to interview Sinclair for the first time in 30 years after the Edinburgh murders. But the interview was a bust. He didn't say a word. They asked him questions for hours. He sat there and said nothing. Which... If you're in that situation, is the best thing you can do. However, it's obviously really shitty, but from a defense standpoint, keep your mouth shut. The police felt like they had enough to bring Sinclair to trial for Christine and Helen's murders, especially with the DNA found at the crime scene, the uh, DNA they split to match Sinclair and one of the Helen or Christine. The trial was in 2007, And the prosecution threw everything they had at him. However, the judge didn't believe. They proved without a doubt that he was responsible for their death. Mainly because Sinclair's defense was that he had consensual sex and left to go home, leaving the two girls with Gordon. So Gordon must have killed them alone. So Sinclair won the case. He is still in prison for two life sentences, but the families were crushed at this result. They thought they finally had closure. They thought they finally had the answer they were looking for. And it was pulled, the rug was pulled out from under them. The police, press, and public were outraged, but nothing could be done. Double jeopardy was in play. But this didn't sit well with anyone. So an argument was presented at Parliament. Don't ask me how this all works. Just know that it was so convincing that the double jeopardy law was advised. So the charge stated that you can try someone again for the same crime if there's new evidence discovered that wasn't available at the time of the first trial. So originally you can't double jeopardy says you can't try someone twice for the same crime. You tried them once, you couldn't prove it, you don't get to do that again. That still is uh law in the United States. However, from my understanding in Scotland, you can try someone again if you find evidence that was not available at the time of the first trial. Not evidence that you chose not to use but it wasn't available. So it's a very difficult task to come up with that to try someone a second time. However, there was a chance that he could still be found accountable for Christine and Helen's deaths. Years later, forensic scientists had the brilliant idea of checking the tights of the girls that were used to tie their hands behind their back. The tights had never been unknotted, so if there was DNA in the inner folds of the tights inside the knots, they would be preserved and show that, they, that Sinclair and Hamilton did tie the knots. Sure enough, DNA testing was done from blood on the inside of the folds of the tights and it linked right back to Sinclair. Also, the knots used on Christine Were different than the knots used on Helen showing that Gordon was there as well so Sinclair was brought back to court in 2014 where he was found guilty of Christine and Helen's murders the family was incredibly relieved however Helen's father gave an interview immediately after the trial saying he will never have closure because he's been through hell I'm not sure if the girls' parents were all still alive at this point, but Helen's father addresses Christine as family since the girls were frequently with each other and at each other's houses. But finally, the world's end murders were solved. Legally. Unfortunately, Sinclair has never been tried for the murders of Francis Baker, Agnes Clooney, Hilda McAuley, and Anna Kenny. Anna Kenny's body was eventually found in a shallow grave. And Sinclair's ex wife believes he has killed many other women and had been killing for 10 years, around 72 to 82. Sinclair died in prison alone in his cell in 2000. 19, so I don't think we will have a definitive answer for the 5, 10, etc. women that did die at the hands of Sinclair. The World's End pub is still in operation, and you can go have a drink. And again, it may not be known for ghosts or the paranormal, but knowing that you may be sitting in the same place where Christine and Helen were last seen, One Saturday night in 1977, it's chilling. I've always said that ghosts wander because they have never found justice for their death. So maybe at this point, the girls did roam the pub, but they have finally been set free because Sinclair was arrested, serving life sentences, was charged for their murders and then died in prison. Who's to say? But it's a, it's a tragic story. And we see this time and time again that so many of these victims could have still been alive if the law was followed correctly and if police did their job correctly. And not that's not to say being a police officer is easy or being an investigator is easy or being a lawyer is easy. But we could do so much better. So I hope that wasn't too heavy for people listening, but I thought it was important to give these women the time they deserve and the spotlight they deserve, especially for the women who never found justice. Their killer was never caught, or at least charged. For their murders but now I have another paranormal experience to share with you of my own accord I work at a restaurant in New York City Flatiron Manhattan so it's an old building we have a private dining space above the restaurant and I was working a Brunch for a 21st birthday party. It's like family and friends. And it's been renovated, so it's not like creepy or anything like that. It's, you know, a new kitchen, new everything. It's beautiful, but it's old. It's an old building. The first time I worked a private event in that space, the lights in the back hallway would shut off by themselves. And I didn't really think much of it. It happened like two or three times. And I always thought it was like the breaker or someone bumped into the light switch or something. However, this weekend when I was working up there again, my manager kept coming to me and being like, why is the office door open? And I would look, I turn around and look and sure enough, the door would be cracked open. I'd be like, I don't know maybe someone used the restroom in there. And she's like, well, no one should be going in there. I'm like, yeah, I have no idea. So I would close the door. F- like 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, I'd walk back in the back hallway and the office door would be open again. No one's inside the door. You have to literally turn the handle to open it. Like you can't just push it open. So it's just strange. I think it happened like th- at least three times that I noticed that the door was cracked open with no one coming in or out. So just strange. Can't explain it. But nothing crazy. After that, one of the guests was using the bathroom. Not the one in the office, but a separate one. And I was standing on these uh, steps down to where they were dining. And the bathroom's behind me. So I couldn't see if, you know, if he had come out of the bathroom. But I felt a gentle hand... Touch my upper left shoulder. Kind of in the sense that someone's trying to walk by you. Or just to let you know that someone's standing behind you. So you don't back up into them. I thought it was the guy using the bathroom. And he was trying to get around me. And so I turned over my left shoulder to say excuse me or sorry. And when I turned over nobody was there. Can't explain it. Very odd. I'm telling... My coworker, this in our liquor room, which is in that back hallway, as I'm explaining what happened to him, the lights turn off behind me. And I heard something, and then so I looked around and I was like, Did the lights just go off? And he was like, Yeah, I just watched it happen. I was leaning against the door frame, and so he thought I bumped into the light switch. So he looked, but the light switch is on the other side of the hallway, so there's no one over there. I couldn't have done it. It is just bizarre that it happened all in the midst of me telling him that my back was touched and no one was there. Very strange. Not threatening. Very lovely. Literally just felt like a, hey, I'm here type situation, but was not prepared for that on a Sunday brunch during a 21st birthday party. So once again, These old buildings in these big cities, Chicago and New York, I have felt something. I've seen stuff. It's never ending. And I'm okay with that. As long as it's not threatening, I'm fine with that. But thank you all for listening. I know this was an intense one. We'll get more into paranormal investigation cases next week. But check out Haunted Hometowns on Instagram and Twitter for photos related to tonight's episode and all episodes, guest info, upcoming news, etc. Send me your paranormal stories at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from a bunny with antlers hopping by your feet to a wolf standing on its hind legs howling at the full moon. Let me know and I will see you all back here in a week because everyone loves a ghost story. And I believe it's Friday the 13th that this comes out, so stay safe. It's the witching hour and have a great night. The theme song is by Tyre, Follow him on Instagram at queer QueerPopStar and follow his music on any streaming service, Apple Music, Spotify at T-H-A-I-R. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. His artwork is fantastic. I got my information from Wikipedia, Murderpedia, the BBC documentary, The Hunt for the World's End Killers, Mirror.com, Glasgow Live, The Guardian, Scottish Sun, and Mango Books.